Welcome to Standing in Christ in the 21st Century, learning about who we are in Christ and how to respond to the culture of our day. I'm your host, Dave Minkle. Hello, and thank you for joining episode number three, where I hope to answer the question of what is the ultimate framework that will enable us to see the world as it is in our rightful standing before God, and to answer the following questions. Our identity, who we are. Our status, how does God see us? Our calling, what is our purpose? Our destiny, and how we will realize our status in a full sense. How we will complete our mission, especially after the fall. As a reminder, a worldview is a perspective on reality. It provides a context to how we see the world and ourselves in relationship to it, as well as a context of how we perceive God in our relationship to Him. Now, at the outset, I would suspect that there is a large gap of knowledge in this area, in this specific question about the framework. And that's not because I know anything about you, but because I had this gap of knowledge after doing a bachelor's degree in biblical studies and a master's in theology. Now, this isn't some sort of secretive knowledge that belongs to special organizations with secret handshakes. And in going through this material, I will probably be stepping on some toes, but just hear me out. Listen to the biblical passages and see if it jives with Scripture. Now, there's two basic reasons that I've come up with that have contributed to this lack of knowledge on the subject. And the first is is that some of these passages are difficult and have been up for considerable debate. And second, it takes a great deal of cultural and linguistic research and understanding to put these passages in their proper context. And due to this, most pastors and theologians have shied away from these controversial passages. And I'm definitely not the person to be able to dive into Scripture and get that out for myself either. So it's going to take a couple podcasts to go through this material. And I'm heavily indebted to the material of Michael Heiser, who holds a PhD in Hebrew and Semitic studies. He's written several books, including The Unseen Realm. In that book, I would put on my top five to ten books of all time. It was very impactful. It put a lot of things together in the proper context for me as I was going through his material. Now, before we get into the subject and in a way of preparation, I would like to take a short detour and discuss the significance of God's Word, specifically how it hits our ears and our minds and how it resonates with our hearts where it does not. For example, if my wife were to tell me, I love you, and I equated that with the phrase, have a nice day or see you later, it would gut its actual intended meaning. The true meaning of what my wife wanted to communicate would have been lost due to my frame of mind and not because she had failed to communicate. When the Bible states that God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in 2 Peter 1.4, does that hit us as something amazing or something kind of nice? Now, my time with Voice of the Martyrs, when I volunteered for that organization, and it's an organization that supported the persecuted church throughout the world, I discovered that the number one thing that believers wanted who lived in persecuted countries was the Word of God. And that's because the Word of God was their lifeline to their relationship with God. Now, the key to understanding the value of what God says in His Word is faith. But I don't mean blind or intellectual faith but a matter of the heart. So in 2 Corinthians 
6, 11 through 13, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. And it says in verse 11, Now our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So we see here the ability that one has to open their heart or to close their heart. And we can do this to God, and we can do this to others. Now, if you think about revival in historical terms, it's an awakening to the depth and the reality of the truths of Scripture. And it's an openness to God. So if you think about that, and that that's what real revival is, then we don't have to wait for a quote-unquote revival. We need to look at revival within a single heart, which is our heart. And if that's what the true intent of of a revival is, then that's something that we have within us, and that is a power that we have within us as well. Now, my oldest daughter has recently gotten engaged, and as her and her fiancé should, they see each other in the best possible light. Now, some may say that this is romantic feelings and that'll fade when the honeymoon is over. But as we apply this to our relationship with God, we can see that this is not true. The beatific or beatifical vision that's found in the writings of people like Thomas Aquinas, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, they're speaking of a beholding of the glory of Christ. This is not a vision of sight, but of understanding the depths and the meaning of God's self-revelation. It's us looking into the Word and saying, okay, I'm going to slow down. I, I realize that you know, maybe I have a hardness of heart or a slowness of mind or whatever it is, and how you want to humbly come before it, the Word and say, God, speak to me. Speak to me in the depth of what this means. Show me the truth and the depth of your Word. Now, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 7 says that love believes all things, just like my daughter with her fiancé. Now, this is faith in action while exercising an open heart. In your current understanding of who God is, do you see him in the best light? Do you believe that he has your back and that he is for you and not against you? Now, some people may bristle against that type of an idea and say, well, you know, God's not for me, I'm for God. However, if we're in a spiritual battle, which we are, and we're facing an enemy, which we are, we need to believe that the commander-in-chief, which is God, has our back, that he is in the fight with us. And that relates to how we see God. What, where is God in this, and what role is he playing? 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Do you understand God is completely good without any evil intent? Or is he secretly out to trip you up? Now, the right answer to any of these questions is an honest one. There's no value in fooling yourself. If you know that you're not where you should be or where you want to be in your relationship with God, then you can work on it, which is a lot better than lying to yourself, resulting in an unfruitful and defeated life. The enemy wants a stronghold in your life, and any area of your life that is not surrendered 
to Christ is a beachfront. Even if it's just a little teeny handhold grip or a finger grip, the enemy is going to keep chipping away at that until he has a beachfront. The flaming missiles of spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6.16, are designed to turn the love of God and his love that he has for you on its head. But what is our defense against us? It is the shield of faith. But faith in what? It is the faith in the precious and magnificent promises of God. That God is good and that no matter what you are going through, no matter how many times you have struggled with the same thing, what you have done, God has not run out of grace for you. His supply of grace is unlimited through Christ. Now let's think of spiritual warfare in the mind. Christians can easily be attacked, that they'll never amount to anything, that they're always blowing it, and that they should give up. And these are designed to discourage and frustrate you so that you'll quit and blame God for it. Because that frustration, day in and day out frustration, I'm not doing it, I'm always blowing it, I'll never get better, and you just want to give up. And then you blame God because why am I in these circumstances? Why aren't you relieving me of this? And why aren't you coming to my rescue? And all the time, it's the enemy that is bombarding the mind and attacking. And it's not the Lord, but it's the enemy. And the enemy plays for keeps and plays to win. And it is not a game for him. It is spiritual warfare. Now, I know this too well because I have been beaten up by fear, regret, and anxiety. But that is the goal of the enemy, to get us focused on the wrong thing so that we will become ineffective. The enemy was defeated at Calvary, Colossians 2.15. And although he knows this, he wants Christians to live as if this is not true. If he can do that, he can also keep Christians from embracing their God-given authority that is rightfully ours through Christ. And we'll be looking at this in greater detail shortly. Now, on more information on spiritual warfare, check out Spiritual Warfare, Christians, Demonization, and Deliverance by Carl Payne. Our perceptions of who God is dramatically affects how we relate to him. So a true understanding of God is our goal. 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I have to underscore the idea of true knowledge. Again, not secretive knowledge, not knowledge you have to get from somebody else. It's knowledge from scripture. But the enemy is there to blind our minds to scripture, to the value and the depth of scripture, and to get us to believe that God is not loving, that God is not there on our side in the battle with us. And we're going to be looking at this more in detail when we get into our family relationship with God. But right now, let's step back for a second and ask the question, how do we know anything about God? So to answer this, you can point to creation as a source of revelation, and that would be considered general revelation. It's generally available for everybody in the world, with some few exceptions. And we can draw, you know, some conclusions like the following. God is a creator. He is powerful. He is intelligent. 
He's not bound by spatial limits in the same way that we are, and there's many more. But you cannot be certain that God is a he, or that he's omnipotent, or omniscient, or triune. These are things that only come through special revelation. The only way that we can really know anything about God is through God's self-revelation. Let me say that again. God has to reveal himself in order for us to know anything about him. God has given us the source of this knowledge. The Bible, both New and Old Testament, is his revelation. Now, the ancient people, the ancient Jewish people, rebelled against God, broke the original covenant that God had instituted. So God went ahead and and instituted a new covenant spoken of by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 33-34, and inaugurated this in Luke 22-20. So God is hidden to us. And in order to know anything about God, he has to reveal himself to us. Scripture talks about the mysteries of God that were you know, hidden long ago but have now been revealed to us in this age. So through God's grace and his mercy and his love, he has revealed himself to us and he has revealed himself in a very, very significant way by giving us both the Old and the New Testament. Now, we know God is a he because that's the way he has revealed himself to us. This gender language is also continued in the language of him being father. Now, this flies in the face of our current gender-specific culture that wants gender equality. Now, although I believe in equality, there is intentional meaning in the way that God has chosen to reveal himself that is lost at the altar of cultural dictates whether it be feminism, homosexuality, or any other special interest group of our day, the church, both men and women, are the bride of Christ. Now, that idea of being the bride of Christ has been difficult for me to get my arms around. Being a man, what does it mean to be a bride? I don't know. I had to meditate on that and ask God to help me internalize what that meant, to get beyond my own maleness and to the heart of the bride language. And I found that it was laden with a communication of the depth of his love and his commitment to us as his bride. With that in mind, having laid the foundation of the importance of God's word, the importance of hearing God's word, and the significance of hearing God's word, let's now see if we can peek under the covers of scripture to gain a better understanding of our status before God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says that, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, according to Money Talks News, brothers Zwalt and Gaza Pilati were homeless in 2009, living in a cave outside Budapest, Hungary and scavenging for junk for a living when they learned that they had inherited a fortune from a grandmother in Germany. The siblings were located by a charity worker and put in touch with the attorney who was handling the state for their maternal grandmother in Baden-Württemberg. The once penniless brothers received four billion pounds, and in today's equivalents, five billion U.S. dollars. Now, I bring this story up because we may be living 
as homeless children. But John chapter 1, verse 12, says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the exousia, the authority to become children of God. It is a legal term or a legal idea or a commissioning that we are children of God with all the rights and the privileges therein. Now, it's true in one sense that we are all children of God because God created all of mankind. But here, this is a defining subset of humanity as God's children. These are those that are being brought into a relationship based upon those that received Jesus Christ. Though this isn't a general statement, but this is bringing in to a, a, a much more specific group of people. Now, this, this idea of right or authority in the Greek, exousia, the same word is used in Acts chapter 26, 12 about Paul. It says, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. Same exact word. So he had the authority, he had the right to be out there on behalf of the chief priest. Matthew chapter 28, 28, the Great Commission. Jesus is explaining to his disciples that all authority has been granted to me in heaven and on earth. Same word. So we have authority. We have this right to be in the family of God. This authority has been delegated. For Paul, it was delegated by the chief priest. For Jesus, given to him by the Father. And for us, by faith in Christ. Jesus has been granted all authority, not some, not a lot, but all authority in heaven and on earth. This is important since we have inherited this authority being commissioned to continue in his work on earth. The point right now is not how to use this authority or any guidelines therein, but first, and foremost, to understand the broader context of why God would grant us any authority at all. Only by understanding this can we align with God's plan and his purposes. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we are called children of God. This family language is extremely important since it relates back to the Old Testament to a larger context and some very real ramifications that we'll be drawing next episode. The value and importance of being brought into the family of God as children is being underscored here by John the Apostle linking the quantity of love that God has for us. It says, how great is the love of the Father. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. So let's do a little mind exercise right now, if you don't mind. And think in your mind's eye right now, your perfect idea of love as a being. So love is out there, and it's, it's a living being. Its heart is pumping love. Eyes and ears are full of love. It breathes love. You know, however you conceptualize a, a being that is moving towards you is full of love. That is God in even more. God is, God is more than that. That's a very simple 
idea or way of contemplating it and meditating upon God. Now, this is difficult for our minds to wrap our arms around because, you know, so often we're looking at our failures rather than the goodness of God. And that is why we need to be reminded of this. Now, Paul knew this and he was praying for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, and that's verses 17 through 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. God has given us his precious and magnificent promises. God has given us that which was most precious to him. And if he has done that and has not withheld that, then how is he going to withhold anything else from us? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I, I hope that you're seeing this picture of God and how he's wanting to reach out to us, how he is inviting us into his family and fellowship with him. He is, he is constructing this. He is bringing this about. This is his creation, his intent, and his desire. And it's the enemy's intent and desire to keep us from that. So the children language, as previously noted, is not specific and can apply to all mankind, although these passages demonstrate that a subset of his creation is in mind, specifically those that have put their faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, although the children of God and the sons of God refer to the same people group, the sons of God language is a more technical term that carries with it a much wider context. So let's look at some New Testament passages of the sons of God, followed up by some Old Testament passages, and hopefully we'll be able to see that the sons of God is not a gender statement, but refers to a status in God's creation. And we're going to go through several of these uh, fairly quickly in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Luke 20, 36, For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Romans 8, 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. Verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Galatians 3.26 For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. These sons of God statements are to all believers. It is a non-gender statement. It is a status statement. And I don't say this because of our current cultural context. We're going to go ahead and take a look at the Old Testament now and see how it applies from the Old Testament. Job 38, uh, 4-7. through 7. So we'll start getting to some more of the controversial passages, beginning with verse 4. Now, this is, this is the Lord rebuking Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God 
shouted for joy. So we can see here that in this passage that, you know, Job is one of the oldest books as far as time timeline in scripture. We have here at the creation, we have sons of God. There's not humanity, not people, but we have divine beings here. Now, Michael Heisner states, there were divine beings, sons of God, present at creation, present at the creation of God. God had a family. He also points out that these are spirit beings, not embodied by nature and without gender. Now, we'll conclude with a couple passages here. Job 1.6 and 2.1. Now, these are difficult passages for sure. And because this is the book of Job, some would say that it's steeped in poetic literature. And although this is true, the book of Job itself assumes that it's a historical book about real people and not simply poetry. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the important piece here is the sons of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, this whole idea of being presented before the Lord is very similar to the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go away on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. Now, no doubt the slaves were summoned to the master, to his presence, and they presented themselves before him. Verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought the five talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The similarities of the passage in Job, of the sons of God presenting themselves to the Lord, and the parable of the talents is striking, and how these slaves then presented themselves to their master as to what they were doing. So I'm, I'm hinting here that there's something going on with these sons of God, that they were entrusted with certain tasks and responsibilities, and they were coming back to present themselves and they report back to God. Now, there's more passages to look at, but we'll have to wait till next time. But what we can see here is that we know that Christians are referred to sons of God. We can see that from the New Testament. We can also see that the Old Testament refers to sons of God, and there's no indication that there's any difference between the two references. So it seems that this is a status or a position within God's kingdom. Now, Heisner states that the divine family becomes the template, originating with those that came before us. I'm going to wait until next episode to draw some real conclusions, but we'll draw some basic conclusions here. Our identity of who we are, sons of God. And the sons of God is a hierarchical expression. Now, how that, that, how that hierarchical expression plays out, we're not going to dive into right now. And then our status and how God sees us, we are his children and have been invited into a divine family with all the rights and the authority therein. God's original design was for a blended family, both terrestrial and celestial beings. So in the next episode, I'd like to go over the 
divine counsel, get into more scriptures and more ideas. We're going to broaden this out as far as the, the idea of the sons of God, the context, how this relates to angels and demons in the Old Testament, and get into the idea of calling, what is our purpose, destiny, and our mission. But one note about authority again, because I want to underscore the idea of authority. It's really important that we understand the authority that we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Jesus Christ was victorious on the cross. The enemy has been completely defeated. We don't have to fear the enemy. He's a defeated enemy. But we are in spiritual warfare. We can get our minds off of what the Bible truly says our position is and how we can fight against the enemy. We can live defeated lives because the enemy is out there to bring that about. However, we have the authority in Christ, through his victory, not our authority, his authority, and we can stand on that. Until next time. Standing in Christ in the 21st century has its goal in becoming the fragrance of God to those around us. 